Welcome to Book Tour. Two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. The book we're going to be talking about this episode is called How Quickly She Disappears by Raymond Fleischman. Um, a little bit about the author. Uh, his debut novel, How Quickly She Disappears, is available now from Penguin Random House. Fleischman has published short fiction in the Iowa Review, Cimarron Review, The Pinch, and Los Angeles Review, among many others. He earned his MFA from Ohio State University and received fellowships and scholarships from Richard Hugo House, the Sewanee Writers Conference, and others. He lives in Bloomington, Indiana, with his wife and three daughters. That's like a hop, skip, and a jump from us, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. maybe not even where, the jump. It could just be a hop and a skip. Do you know where Bloomington is? Bloomington is... Uh, I think it's like directly east of like Champaign, Illinois. So it's probably like a three hour drive from us. Okay. But that Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. Okay. There's also a Bloomington, Illinois. I'm aware of that. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was, I was wondering if you were thinking the same or about the, yeah, never mind. Uh, I, I will uh, I will mention at the start of this that Livius has had a couple of drinks, so nice. if he's a little off, I'm not having a, a stroke or, or a seizure or, or anything. It's yeah, that's uh, just a little slow tonight. That's uh... <laughs> uh, Rob's not. That's the weird thing. I'm drinking. Um, have you ever heard of bubbly? It's like uh, kind of like water. Lacroix. Yeah. Yeah, I the like black... I like blackberry bubbly so we're like our roles are reversed right now no, um lime i like the lime one lime's good i always end up getting it's... the whatever that like is not on the bottom shelf <laughs> <laughs> that's how discerning that's I how am. you select all right it's good. <laughs> it's good to know here is the synopsis for how quickly she disappears the dry meets the silence of the lambs in this intoxicating tale of literary suspense set in the relentless Alaskan landscape about madness and obsession, loneliness and grief, and the ferocious bonds of family. It's been 20 years since Elizabeth's twin sister Jacqueline disappeared without a trace. Now 30-year-old Elizabeth is living far from home in a small Alaskan town. She's in a loveless marriage and has a precocious young daughter she loves more than anything, but who reminds her too much of her long-missing sister. But then Alfred, a dangerous stranger with a plan of his own, arrives in town and commits an inexplicable act of violence. And he offers a startling revelation. He knows exactly what happened to Elizabeth's sister, but he'll reveal this truth only if she fulfills his three requests. Increasingly isolated from her neighbors and imprisoned by the bitter cold and her own obsession, Elizabeth can almost hear her sister's voice saying, come and find me. And so she will, even if it means putting herself and her family in danger. I like how you did a voice for the the sister's voice. Yeah. It was a good touch. That's how I heard it in my head when I read it in the book, because <laughs> that happens in the book. It does. Uh, synopsis is pretty good. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, A little bit at the end, and I think this is maybe phrasing. So increasingly isolated from her neighbors and imprisoned by the bitter cold and her own obsession. I didn't necessarily feel that that was accurate. Maybe a little exaggerated. Um, yeah, it, it almost makes it feel like at some point she's going to be stuck in the wilderness and it's not that kind of book. Right. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the bitter cold is. I mean, it's in Ala- it's in Alaska, so unless it's summertime, it's going to be cold. I wonder if we should introduce a, a bonus point system <laughs> for synopsis. Yeah, Wait, <laughs> like like at most it can be like a quarter point, but we could also like deduct a quarter point <laughs> if it's terrible. Yeah, well, then here's my question. Do we rate that before we read the book or after? I think after, because only after do you know. Well, that's why I'm saying, like, yeah, the intention of the synopsis is not for the person who's finished reading it. So, but then you know if you've been deceived. So if it was a misleading synopsis, (laughs) that's a a strong point. We'll have to we'll have to workshop this one a little bit before it goes live. All right, let's get talking about this book. Um, I knew not so much about this book, about the first half of the synopsis um, before we decided to review this. So I was completely unawares that this took place in 1941. So I was expecting something a little more modern. And I guess in looking at the synopsis, there's literally nothing in here that indicates that it's kind of a period piece. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, don't the... um chapter headings have dates sometimes though no no they they do yeah uh, but i'm saying just from a synopsis standpoint you could have said it's like, pre-world I, war ii yeah i yeah. like I, I i'm not saying that we wouldn't have reviewed it i think it would have been less eye-catching to me gotcha so yeah interesting thought um so the book actually starts out in one of livius's least favorite ways which is uh, a dream sequence uh, yep. So, the we can talk a little bit about the structure of the book, but um, th- throughout the story, uh, Elizabeth, who is the the main character of of the book, who is the one who lost her twin sister twenty years ago, um, will have dreams about her sister, and um, that's how the book starts. The very first chapter is her having a dream about her sister, and then waking up and having a conversation with uh with her daughter Margaret about um checking for the mail cuz Margaret is waiting for a book cuz Margaret's this really precocious little kid um that uh is is homeschooled and she's she's far advanced from where she should be at her age I think she's like 6 when the book starts and uh and so uh, yeah 11 okay 6 11 I don't know anything about kids <laughs> uh so yeah, it starts out with a dream sequence and goes right into just kind of the everyday life of of a family in the early forties in in a remote Alaskan town. Yeah, Rob mentioned um, the mail. So um, interestingly enough, I don't. So nineteen forty one is eighty years ago for all intents and purposes, and it just felt like everything moved far more smoothly back then than I expected it to. So if you would have said remote Alaskan, so here's the problem with the synopsis. Had it have said they live in a remote Alaskan town in 1941, I would have been like, this is going to be a wilderness tale. And that's not really my thing. So kind of circling back to that, but they have a plane that comes in twice a week or once a week, I guess at the beginning of the book um, that delivers uh, mail and packages and stuff. They order through catalogs. So they're not nearly as cut off from the rest of the world as in my mind I would have thought. 
So I, mean, I know that we had airplanes in 1941, right? Because that's just right pre-World War II. But it felt more modern than I expected it to a little bit. Um, but the, the the trick about this particular town, and this is typical even to this day in Alaska, is it is remote enough where it's only accessible by plane. Like there's no road that kind of brings you there. So if you need to get to the outside world, like you're you're flying in and out. So the airstrip mm-hmm. is a very important part of of the town, and um, that's actually yeah. I, I've been to Alaska a few times, and like that was something where when someone said that, I was like, well, how does it even? So you had to fly there first in order to establish like that this is a place to go. It, it's just mm-hmm. it's weird to think about. Uh, but yeah, it did in the course of the story. I'll agree with you. Uh, it didn't feel like there was any disadvantage to living where they lived. So the reason I mentioned the mail being flown in is our um, clear antagonist from the synopsis, Alfred, um, shows up one day in place of the normal plain mail package carrier person. And uh, he's very tired. He had to take on a double shift to fill in for the other pilot who normally does the route, who's away at a wedding. And uh, he asks if he can stay at Elizabeth's home. Now, a little bit of backstory, so that doesn't sound as weird. Elizabeth and her husband, or her husband primarily, runs um, a school in that town. And their lodgings, their home is provided by the government. But they also have a a very big house with a spare room, uh, specifically does so it's a government property. So anytime, like government officials come to the area or whatever they're expected to basically airbnb their house to the people for free so she's kind of in a position where it's awkward her husband's away um, but she knows that as you know having this particular position in town kind of requires that she say say yes to this uh this stranger sleeping um in her home yep um and he's just kind of weird uh when he's introduced he he doesn't necessarily do or say anything that's uh, like a like a red flag, but everybody just gets kind of a weird feeling about the guy. Um, and so he lot he he stays as a lodger there, and like she's expecting him to like stay the night and then go the next day. Um, and so it's it's like a very short term agreement. Um, and so she's like, well, she felt kind of like Livia said, socially pressured into doing that. Um, and at like the, the insight that the thing that's, that kicks everything off the part of the synopsis where it says, um, he commits a, an inexplicable act of violence is, is not long after he gets to town, which means it happens very early in the book. I'm thinking less than 20% of the way into the book. Um, and that really moves us into the, the meat of the story, which is, um, her interactions with him to try and figure out like how he's involved in what happened to her sister, like a long time ago. He does that. What's becoming a very like stereotypical thing. Like I won't talk to anybody. I'll only talk to her, you know, and the, the townspeople kind of fold and yeah, he reveals that again, this isn't going too far outside the synopsis that he has information about Elizabeth's sister and that um, she's alive and he knows where she is. So this so this kind of starts this cat and mouse kind of game of the two of them making demands on one another and then how that affects obviously Elizabeth and her family. So a little bit about the the structure of the book. 
because it kind of bears talking about it alternates um, inconsistently alternates between like the present day in like a third person um, narrative uh, about what's going on in the town in the present day. And then in some chapters, I don't think every other chapter, but like it's usually they alternate. There will be like a flashback chapter talking about uh, Elizabeth's life uh, around the time that her sister went missing. And in those chapters, it is a second person narrative. Um, So it's like you went to the door and you opened it uh, (laughs) from the perspective of Elizabeth. So for some reason, these flashback chapters are in a second person perspective. My suspicion is it is to kind of like not force, but like encourage empathy with the Elizabeth character because you're seeing things from her perspective. Um, But it's a little bit, I found it a little bit weird. Um, I didn't have so much a problem with that. And I guess I don't know if it's just to see her perspective. I actually kind of like that. Um, if you didn't pay attention to the chapter heading or whatever, like it didn't take you any time to realize that now you're back 20 years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? So as an actual tool, um, what I didn't like about it, and I was going to mention this more in the wrap up, wrap up, but since we're talking about it now, it's probably a good place to put it. Um, we've read alternating chapter books before. Everybody has. We have on this podcast. And I get that if you get to the very end of the book, there's probably a part where you have to stop alternating. But this one was done inconsistently, like you said. And that bothered me. Like, there wasn't a rhythm. So when I turn the page, it, when you start in an alternating pattern, I just assume it's going go, to go that pattern for the rest of the book. But this one dropped off. Right. You know, nowhere near the end. And then, like you said, sometimes it'd be two chapters that took place today, and then it'd be a flashback. Like, it was, I don't know. I think if you're going to use that structure, you have to figure out a way to use it throughout the book, at least for me. Right, to not throw off the pace or the rhythm or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, for sure. Yeah, yep. I'll agree. And that's that's where I dinged it, actually. It was pace is where I picked to, to score um, lower than I would have if that was, you know, the other way around. Yeah, and honestly, we're probably at a point where we probably can't talk too much more about plot. You understand the general idea is um, from this point forward, she's just going to do um, what she can to figure out what, what he knows about what happened to her sister. Um, and the synopsis implies that she might be a little reckless about that, even if it means putting herself and her family in danger. Uh, and, and that's kind of the direction of the story. Um I will say that uh, a couple things of note, uh, I feel like there was the inclusion of uh, some of the Alaskan natives um, customs and stuff like that. And I feel like that was well done. Uh, There was a a sort of funeral at one point that uh, it was in a, in a, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, the customs of the, of the way that this particular tribe does funerals is like nothing I'd ever heard about before. So it was interesting to kind of learn about this culture and in the acknowledgements in the back of the book, he does, you know, thank people for their help in his research of that. So, you know, drawing from actual real customs of actual real people, I thought was really cool. Um, and it's, it's a pre-World War II um, book that, 
does kind of tangentially mention war a little bit from time to time. Um, and the fact that the characters were German, um, like the, the main character, Elizabeth and her, um, husband were German gave a, an interesting, unique perspective on like, Oh, the Germans are starting to be real assholes. And how does that make people feel about us as German people? So those were a couple of things of note, uh, that I thought worked pretty well in the story. Yeah, I guess I didn't plan on, plan on talking about that, but I, as you were saying it, I was thinking that, um, there was a lot of good um, stuff going on around the story that didn't necessarily need to be there. Like it wasn't integral to the story. So like you're saying the funeral and the customs and stuff in the war kind of helped to set a, a setting without in a lot of stories. If you mentioned this takes place on a military base or near a military base, like there's going to be some type of military situation that occurs and that right. didn't happen in this book. They just set a good, a good setting. So, which, which was really nice. Interestingly. So like, uh, that rings true to me too, because, um, of the times that I've, I've been to Alaska, um, it, it, so my father lived in Alaska before he passed and that's why he, I was up there. So I, I spent the summer up there one year. Um, so there was a lot of time I spent in Alaska with people who are, you know, na- not natives, but like, you know, citizens of, I guess is the best way to say it. And I didn't think about it. It, it, you know, you wouldn't think about it, but Alaska's position on the globe, sorry, flat earthers, um, makes it a very strategic military point. And I never thought about that, but there is a constant presence of military and just an awareness, but kind of in the background, you know, it's not something that is, is like Livia said, it's not something that's like, because there's military, it's part of the story, but it's there. And that's like the exact feeling I had when I was there because it would come up or like I would say something and there would be a response and I'd be like, oh shit, I never even thought about that. So I found that to be um, very authentic. Mm-hmm. Not a ton of characters in this one. Um, we can kind of go through a, a few of them, I guess. Um, we have Elizabeth and her husband, daughter, who we already mentioned. Um, Jacqueline is a character in that she appears in flashbacks and in the um, teen dream sequences that happen in this book. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, we get a brush with uh, Elizabeth's dad through the, you know, through the flashbacks. And uh, the only other real character of note is Max Sanford, who's a, um, a good friend of Elizabeth Fouts, Fouts, however you'd say that, um, and her husband. And uh, other than that, there's you know some some townies, some locals that you know pop up for for sideshow commentary and stuff uh, in, in parts. But yeah, it is. It, it's not a huge cast of characters. Yeah. So uh, that's that. I feel like uh, I, I we hadn't talked about this previous, but I feel like. I have some spoiler talk in me. I don't know if you do, but there's some things that um, I have. I want to air air out a little bit and see if I can clarify because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I feel like there's some things that I want to hear your perspective on. So I'd love to do some spoiler sure. talk. Then without um, further 
conversation, we're going to head over to patreon.com slash booked where we do spoiler talk. And you can hear that if you are a Patreon contributor at the level of $1 a month or more. I know we didn't do one for the last book we reviewed, but we probably do two out of three, three out of four, right? We do a lot yes. of these. Yeah, it's pretty frequent. So, so. Now, I do want to say, if you're not interested in the spoiler talk, you still can go to Patreon and support us by pledging a dollar or more a month. I just don't want people to think they have to listen to Spoiler Talk if they do that. Oh, that's a really good point. All right. Well, join us over at Spoiler Talk if that's your thing. And we're back from a fairly enlightening conversation. I think (laughs) Rob and I both both kind of maybe help convince one another of some things. Um, Sorry, you know, author guy, um, your score dropped a little bit after Rob pointed out some things. So (laughs) I just got to say shit happens in spoiler talk, talk, man. It happens. Yeah, I'm I'm responsible for a point one two drop in Livius's overall score. Pretty excited. There you go, Raymond. There you go, Raymond. Now you know who to who to point the finger at. Um, I guess we're probably ready for wrap ups. Right. Is there anything else you want to say about this book? I mean, the language was good. It was written well. You know, there was not a lot of, uh, you know, stumbling. And I think that um, for me, again, that authenticity was delivered in little things that probably only existed in 1941 Alaska that I'm not aware of. Right. Little touches. of. Th- so, yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, from a writing standpoint, I think Raymond's a solid writer. Yep. I agree. Oh. Well, you're already halfway there. Just go for it. <clears throat> Finish it up. Um, interesting premise in... Like it's not, it's not a hundred percent original, but he does a pretty good job of laying out the story. So the story is uh, a long um, unsolved mystery comes, you know, new things come up and we can look through the eyes of the person who lost someone as they try to find them. Um, There's some interesting things happening there with the twin connection. Um, I, you know, I probably wouldn't have picked it up. If it was a period piece, but I think it worked in the book's favor in that I liked the setting. Um, I really liked the tone of the book overall. I felt like I was put there and, you know, we talked about this a little bit before with the army base and kind of the, the things that went on. The setting was was good. Um, nothing about this book really like sparkled, though. Um, Rob and I talked about some missed opportunities. Um, I will say that I did like the character and her motivations and, and her willingness to play this game and how that affected affected her personality and i don't want to say too much more about that but there's something in there that i really liked about it and in my wrap-up i want to plug a book by richard layman that i think takes the best parts of that book of this book for me which was elizabeth's interaction specifically with alfred and what she was willing to do to, to find her sister and translate that over into like an expanded um, version of that is in the dark by Richard Lehman. It's a little more grandiose and it's definitely not a story about a missing person, but it's really a, uh, you know, how far would you go basically on a dare type story? I don't want to say too much about it. I might convince Rob to do this as a throwback, but it's uh, one of my favorite Lehman books. So that book, if we were reviewing it here, would probably get like a nine. Um, this one, because of previously mentioned reasons, still scored fairly well on the new system. Um, I'm giving it a 6.88 out of 10. <laughs> that would have driven me nuts in 2019 um exactly but now it's it's i like it because it's it's my framework that we're using here um yeah so overall i i had a good impression of this book and i think that where the book shines is in the um again tone 
like this, the feel of the book, uh, the Alaska parts that, you know, were big to the setting, uh, rang very true to me and it felt very authentic. Um, I think that it was, you know, easy reading. Um, and it was a pretty quick pace. I read it in, did I read it in two? Yeah, I read it in two sittings. Um, (laughs) and it didn't take me a lot of time at all. Um, so, and I, and I think that it's a book that pretty much anybody could pick up. So, uh, it's got a lot of good qualities to it. The character development was either great or lacking. So that one was something that kind of dinged it a little bit for me because I feel like there was an, uh, imbalanced, uh, attention to the, the development of characters, which could have, uh, could have been a little better. And the plot while overall I like the story a lot, and I especially like the the darkness that um, the Elizabeth character was willing to um, go into for the sake of, of getting what she wanted for so long. Um, so Elizabeth character, very strong, and the story that surrounds her intentions was the strongest part of the book. Other stuff, there was some plot inconsistencies and just some like, I think gaps that could have been filled in that would have made it a more satisfying story for me. So, uh, but overall, and this is a note I made about my kind of personal score, my personal impression. This is a first book. And if you think about the fact that this is the, like a debut novel of someone, this is a really good effort. There is enough really promising parts to this book that, you know, once this guy's got a couple more books under his belt, he's probably going to be, a really good writer. There was just a few things that again, kind of dinged it for me. So overall I am <laughs> very close to Livius. Uh, and, and my overall score is 6.875. So we're very, very close. Very, very close. So for anybody who's keeping track because they rate on Goodreads or on, um, Amazon, that would be like a 3.4, which, you know, I guess we'd round up to like a 3.5 if we had to. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah, um, I'm glad we read it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those like. I was just listening to another podcast where they used um, the term script doctor. Like, I feel like this one could have been script doctored into a eight and a half. I, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I feel like there was a few things that um, if leveraged differently or just kind of told differently or whatever or fleshed out a little bit could have really helped the overall impression but for the average reader i think it would be a satisfying book yeah yeah speaking of satisfying books um i know i mentioned to you i'm going to mention it here and maybe i'll elaborate a little bit for years for eight and a half years i have complained that i read less since we do this podcast i think that all the listeners have probably heard that at some point and i know rob has heard it um, probably more than he wants to um so i made a decision at the end of january to make this the year where i am not mad that i haven't read enough books so the plan this year is uh i'm going to read 52 books this year so that will include books review on the podcast um but you know what did we do last year was 30 33 yeah i think it was 33 yeah so i'm assuming we'll do the same this year 30 ish um so the plan is to uh to get that number up to 52 um on top of what we're doing here 
that's uh that's that's going to really conflict with my decision which was to hand over all the editing duties to you so (laughs) (laughs) can you imagine i actually did that um i you know what i i honestly i don't mind editing i've I've done a little bit editing i did it for the view um i did it for the episode when you were in texas when we reviewed the mister yeah um i don't mind doing it i really don't that's why i said if there's ever a time that you need me to take over for a few episodes or whatever just let me know i'm happy to do it well i actually really enjoy doing it new year new year new me yeah you know what there's something fun about it like at first i sit down and i go because you and I, the, the difference between you and I is like, if I had to edit it, I'm like, I'm here, I might as well start. And then when I start, I'm like, well, now I'm almost halfway, so I might as well finish. So I don't put any time in between it. Yep. So when I start, I'm like, ugh, I don't want to do this. But by the time I get a third of the way in, I'm pretty much set to do the rest of it. You know what I mean? Like, yep. you just get in the rhythm and you just keep going. So um, I will not be doing a separate podcast, but I'll probably bring you very brief reviews. I will tell you what I'm reading, and I... I want to put this book down already, but I'm like, I can't stop reading the first book I'm reading outside the podcast, this challenge. (laughs) So I was on either a list of weird books or a list of books that says something like, uh, if you love shadow of the wind, you'd like this, you know? So I don't remember. So I was looking at a couple of different, I was just trying to put together a list. So I had like six or seven books that I could just grab whenever from Amazon. And you know what I mean? So I came across, if on a winter's night, a traveler. Oh, which are you familiar with this? Uh, what's the name? Is is it uh, an Italian guy? Yeah, for sure, Italo Calvino. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I I hope I'm not spoiling anything here, but uh, that was recommended to us very early in the podcast. Do you remember it? I don't. Not at all. This was. I I felt this was the first time I heard of it. Highly recommended. By none other than Craig Clevenger. <laughs> That's very interesting. So <laughs> off podcast, I'll talk more about this book with you. Yeah, you know, because I, I don't, you know, but it, it's 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 structurally very interesting, and I'll explain to you where I kind of divulge div- where fuck whatever where I leave the path from that to to kind of like oh, I'm a little bored with it. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, it popped up on a list, and uh, it is a translated 1979 novel. Uh, you know, it's called. I'm on the Wikipedia page. It's a postmodernist narrative. It is a pretty crazy way to tell a story. So I'll say they're calling it a frame story. Um, but it's a book about you, the reader, trying to read a book. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll see if I make it through by the next episode. Maybe I'll have a little bit of a, a longer shtick on it. But that's uh, that's what I'm working through. I'm like 30% in. So depending on how much time I get before we start next week's book, I might try to knock this out. I'll be really interested to hear um, your thoughts on that. That's uh, that's crazy that to have a book come around that was literally spoken to us. Like I, I want to say it was in that first interview we did with Clevenger. So we're talking... September of 2011. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. I got that long-term memory um, that, that Livius is you losing. You have a ridiculous... Oh, God. Like, you have no idea. <laughs> Earlier, I had to look at what the name of the book we were reviewing was. Like, I had to actually look at the document because I had no, no recollection of what it was called. 
this is probably a, a, a bad sign because I got to tell you, by the time we get to booked episode like 2000 or something, whatever, like yeah. it's literally going to be there's going to be like a nurse taking off my little oxygen mask so I can say something incredibly inappropriate <laughs> that has nothing to do with the book review and then she'll, she'll put it back on me. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I'm sure there'll be a, a different charm to those episodes. I'm sure there will be. What have you been doing? Uh, I've actually been watching a lot of stuff lately. Um, for some reason I felt like I needed to just, um, kind of dip back into culture. And so that takes the, the form of just looking at like what's new on iTunes and deciding what I wanted to, to watch of that. So there's highs and lows, obviously. Um, but like, I'll, I'll tell you some movies I've been, I've, I've watched, uh, recently, I'll start with the the ones that weren't that great, and then we'll kind of move into better stuff. So, like, I watched the new Terminator movie, Dark Fate. I heard that was a huge piece of shit. It's not that great. Okay. Uh, watched the Joker movie. You and I disagree on this, but I think it's a terrible movie. I watched the new the second Zombieland movie, Double Tap. Yeah. Eh. Not that great. I wasn't a huge. I wasn't a huge fan of the first one. Like I watched it and it was okay, and I have no real desire to watch a it, sequel. It's it's uh it's it's mindless entertainment. I watched Rambo: Last Blood. See, that's on my list. That's available now, like video on demand or whatever. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's got to be. Uh, uh, so iTunes does this thing where, like, when they have it available before it's like available, available, it'll be available for purchase but not rent. And it's available you. for purchase and rent, so it must be like all oh, over the okay. place by now. So cool. yeah, um, I, I I won't because you're planning to see it. I won't spoil anything, mm-hmm. but it was it was good. <laughs> Interesting, because so. that had very mixed reviews. It was a love it or hate it movie. Like I was kind of watching the the reviews for it when it came out. Yeah, cool. Good I don't know, know if I just have a soft spot for like Stallone after like his his uh, performance in the movie Creed. But like, man, uh, I, I'm liking the stuff that he's putting. Like when he's putting something out, or it's based on his intellectual property, like uh, because Creed was not written by him. I feel like he does an awesome job. So, yeah. I I feel, and I could be wrong, but I feel like I read somewhere that that Creed thing is he has played a character the longest. Oh. Uh, like I, like yeah. in movie terms, like I'm sure there's probably like a soap opera actor or something that's been doing it for 50 years. But if you go back to whatever, 78, when he first played Rocky, I think it was yeah. 76, 78, whatever, to now that he might be like the longest person to play a, a character. The same and that character probably holds true yeah. for, for, yeah, for First Blood, for Rambo. Right. Because Rambo came out like maybe two or three years after that. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, you know what? First Blood, I loved First Blood when I was a kid. First Blood 2. And then the other two were kind of meh. But I was very intrigued at the idea that he was coming back after however long to, to reprise this role. Like I was, I did not see Creed 2. I did really like Creed, mm-hmm. though. Yeah. Yeah. It, the Creed movies have so much heart that I wasn't expecting um, that. Yeah. Those really took me by surprise. I got two more movies. I want to mention Jesus, Rob. I know. I, I like, I'm telling you, like I'm, I'm all over the place, but I saved the best for last. Um, uh, motherless Brooklyn is, is mm-hmm. a movie that I watched recently. I know you watched it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the book by Jonathan Latham. Um, it's like one of the few books of his that I have not read. Um, but I knew that it was written and directed by 
um, Edward Norton, and he's starring in the film as well. And the supporting characters are really good too. Fucking Willem Dafoe's in it. Um, uh, Bruce Willis, uh, Alec Baldwin. Like it's got a good cast to it. It's got Ethan Suplee, and I thought it was a great movie. I thought the story was good. I thought like. Um, like the cinematography and the filming was good. I thought the acting was good. I thought overall, I think it was just a great movie. Here's something that doesn't happen very often. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, um, I really enjoyed it. I, I like, I wasn't like, you know, I, how do I say this? Yeah. Willem Dafoe was fine. I always expect more from Willem Dafoe. Like, I feel this is one of those movies where they didn't need Willem Dafoe. Like, literally anybody yeah. else could have played the brother and it wouldn't have mattered. And then there are Willem Dafoe roles. So um, the the FBI agent in Boondock Saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, even even the Green Goblin in the whatever original Spider-Man franchise. Like, there are some roles where you're like, oh, yeah, of course they fucking got him. Yep. And, and it goes back to I feel like we had this conversation once on the podcast. Um, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I'm aware of it. That's the third El Mariachi movie. Yeah. Um, I was really excited that he was in that. In that, and at that point, he was doing like a ton of really cool stuff. You know, where if you saw Willem Dafoe, um, it was like shit. I can't think of his name. What's the guy who talks really weird? It's kind of like same age as Dafoe. He talks really slow. Shit. Any rate, those two guys. <laughs> that guy. I, I can't. Yeah, that guy. It'll come to me. Um, uh, Walken, Christopher Walken, um, oh, like yeah, those yeah. guys, like y- you give them a role because that character is special, right? And they fit the role. So in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, he literally has two lines, and they're both in Spanish. So there's like no reason to have Willem Dafoe in this movie, right? Yeah, he, he has like like no screen time, and he delivers two lines that aren't even in his native language. And I was just, and that's how I kind of felt about this. Like Willem Dafoe's a little bit of a letdown, not because he did a terrible portrayal, but that like he got relegated to be a crazy dude. Yeah, I get excited when Willem Dafoe's in something, and then when it's a meh role. Anyway, um, who I really liked, and I didn't don't have this pulled up. I I thought obviously Norton did a brilliant job. Um, the female lead, mm-hmm. I thought she was great. Yeah, so I, I yeah I, she did. A wonderful I like that character, and I thought she did a terrific job, but. A great um, detective movie, yeah. I guess. And and Rob said, "This is what did you say to me? Like this is the most detective detective movie or whatever, or something along <laughs> yeah. those lines." And yes, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. I called it like a proto detective movie or something. Yeah, but um, Edward Norton's character, who has Tourette's, um, really makes this movie. So well, yeah. And there was honestly like I don't know. So the. And then don't, I got one more movie I want to talk about, but there was a part. So he had this, like, they didn't call it Tourette's, but like, it was very Tourette's like, but he had like a, like some anxiety kind of like mixed into it. And, uh, at one point someone was kind of like goofing with him and, um, like went to like touch his face or touch his neck or something like that. And Norton had this like tick of a reaction where he like turned his head in a weird way. And it was like, that wasn't acting. Like, that was, like, it was an authentic moment that fit the exact, like, uh, you know, uh, di- disability or whatever he had. I was like, mm-hmm. he has an uncanny way of, of physically acting. Like, the same thing in, uh, 
we, we uh, primal fear. Yep. Like, like those things. Cause you know, he could, he could emote and he can actually do the acting and talking and everything very well, but it's those like extra physical movements and stuff like that, that it, it's so tough to pull off. Right. I'm assuming it's tough to pull off that. It's just so impressive. And there was a moment where I was just like blown away by his acting. <laughs> I only watched it at your recommendation. Uh-huh. And the reason I say that I'm so fucking petty. Sometimes I watched, um, he was on, uh, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast when the movie hit theaters. So three months ago or whatever. And, you know, they eventually got around to talking about this movie and he really liked the book. And he then said that. So the, the story with the, the politician, not to get too far into it, that essentially, I guess he added that into the story because it's based on an actual guy in New York. Mm. So that character is based on somebody who, you know, was a crooked politician, essentially. And I was really mad that he took a book that I know is a well-revered book and then, like, cut shit in for the movie. <laughs> and it was enough to make me mad enough that I was like, yeah, I'm probably not going to watch that. <laughs> and then you messaged me about it and you said it was really good. And I was like, I, I used to love Edward Norton. I mean, who didn't, yeah. right? American History X, Primal Fear, you know, back in those days. Even that dumb movie he did where he was a priest and his best, or he was a, ra- oh, yeah. no, he was a priest. His best friend was a rabbi and they're in love with the same girl. Like he's even good in that. Yep. Um, so, but I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. 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 Probably one of my favorite movies I've watched recently. Now this next movie that is, is one of my favorite movies I've watched recently is just going to fucking blow your mind. Livius. I know, <laughs> I know this for a fact. I can't tell you myself how much I enjoyed the movie. Dr. Sleep. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because we reviewed the book, and I was lukewarm yeah, on the book. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The movie's How? fucking great. All right, I have some questions to ask. And, of course, I, I mean, I guess I could have Googled it because we can't be the only people that read the book and saw the movie, or you uh-huh. can't be the only person. Um, I felt like from that trailer that it didn't follow the mo- the book very much at all. Am I misinterpreting the trailer? No, the trailer's misinterpreting the story, I think. Um, so okay. the and that was actually a problem for me too. In all of the promotional materials I saw for the movie, it was like The Shining. It wasn't mm-hmm. Doctor Sleep. It, they right. they they so heavily relied on the connection to The Shining that it was like beating you over the head with the fact that this has to do with The Shining. And the movie is very faithful to the actual the book okay. and the story, and I and I and I and I wonder if anybody could have done it better. Like it's so good. Oh, I'm totally moving this to the top of my list of things to see because again, for for so two reasons. I remember us discussing. Maybe it was just me discussing because we reviewed The Shining before we did Doctor Sleep. Like we read it, right? Mm-hmm. We actually reviewed it. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know if we reviewed it, but I, I audio booked it so that I could be prepared for. Dr. Okay. Sleep. And I know I read it. So, but yeah. I remember us talking about it and I had said that there's so little connection that much like having Willem Dafoe play a Mexican mob yeah. boss. Like, I'm not sure why this had to be the sequel to the shining. Cause it's, it's the, it's thread thin, the connection. And then I see this trailer and I'm like this, I don't remember any of this from the book. Like none of this <laughs> looks familiar. Yeah. And that. Um, the Dark Tower, 
did the same thing, which is another fairly recent Stephen King movie. I'm sure some have come out in between. But I was like, well, if they're just going to start taking properties and just making movies with the name and throwing a main character in there, like, I might pass on that. So, But hearing that it's more faithful to the book definitely inspires me to, to watch it. Yeah, and in a way where, like, so they're obviously, even in the book Dr. Sleep, there was, like, some elements, like the guy that was the cook or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and they do have some... Um, they do use some scenes or, or moments from the shining and stuff like that. But like the whole story of how there's like these wandering people who like live off of the shine is, mm-hmm. is super strong. And um, yeah, I was just so impressed. Like I was so impressed with Dr. Sleep that I was like, you know, who would want to watch the shining, <laughs> which it sounds, wow. it sounds kind of dumb, but like, yeah, it, it's, it's fucking great. And I'd love to hear other people's opinions because, and I did, I will say I watched the, the director's cut, which is three hours long. Holy um, shit. Yeah. So it's like another half an hour, I think more than the theatrical release. Um, and I don't know what the difference is cause I've only seen the director's cut, but yeah, like it surprised me. I wanted to watch it because we had read the book and I wanted to see, mm-hmm you know, just how it, how it stood up and God damn it, man. I I was so like, like halfway through it, I was texting like our, our buddy, Jesse, uh, Jesse and Misty saying like, Hey, I'm watching Dr. Sleep and it's actually surprisingly good. And, and then Jesse watched it and he had a similar opinion. So yeah. Interesting. There you go. All right. I just want to, I just want to draw the, um, the distinction between what you've watched and I've watched <laughs> since we've last spoken of these things. Um, <laughs> is this so what you were texting I, me about the other day? I, yeah. I've only watched um, two full-length movies. I did watch, and I want to mention it here because it's written um, by Jonathan Mayberry. I did watch uh, V Wars, the entire first season on Netflix, um, which is based on a comic book that he wrote. So not a novel, but a comic book. I'm not at all familiar with the comic book, other than knowing it's about like a vampire outbreak, um, essentially. Um, not bad. You know, if I had to score it on uh, on the new system without plugging in numbers, I probably would have given it like a six and a half, seven. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's essentially think zombie outbreak, but it's a vampire outbreak, and they're they're intelligent, like they're they're just they're humans who feed on other humans' blood. So you know they're you know not zombified. Yeah. Um, and then obviously it touches on a lot of like the social aspects of, of how that could go down. And it's of course, two best friends. One becomes a vampire. The other one is the, the scientist with the special set of skills, you know, to, to, to figure out right. <laughs> what this is. So, uh, very open for a season two. I mean, the TV show ended very open to season two. And if season two does come out, I, I would probably watch it. But the two movies I watched, because I was familiar with every movie you mentioned. Um, are you familiar with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance? No. All right. So it's a 2002 South Korean movie. There um, it is. And I did, well, I didn't particularly go back for that reason. <laughs> One of my all-time favorite movies is uh, called Old Boy. And it's uh, directed by a guy named Park Chan-wook. Mm-hmm. Um, Old Boy is easily in my top five, maybe top three movies of all time. Um, he had done three movies over the course of a couple, two, three, four years that 
all had the theme of revenge. So they're not connected, but it's commonly referred to as his revenge trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I've never watched the other two of it, and it's bugged the shit out of me. Now, I've tried. This is probably my third attempt at watching Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. It's, I made it all the way through. Um, it's a good movie. Uh, it's not great. It's good. It's definitely no old boy. So coming up in the upcoming months, I have to finally watch Lady Vengeance, which was the, the final of his revenge films. Um, I, I also watched Stoker. This one you might be more familiar with. This is actually an American movie. Is it recent? Because I feel like I saw something that was new. Five years ago. Hmm. I mean, not super. Let me pull it up. But uh, 2013. So that is a uh, a movie with um, that was produced by Ridley Scott. Uh, nice. Also directed by the same guy, um, Park Chan-wook. But the reason I watched this, because it just looked like a boring ass movie. And I'll be honest, although it was shot beautifully, I, I, I wasn't in love with the story. Um. I found out it was written by Wentworth Miller. Do you know who he is? No. He is the lead actor in Prison Break. Okay. And when he wrote it, um, I wound up on an article about Park Chan-wook, and they were talking about how Wentworth Miller wrote the the screenplay but then submitted it under a pseudonym because he didn't want, you know, whatever. He wanted it to get accepted on his merits, not from the fact that he was the biggest star in the world because mm-hmm. of Prison I was being a little facetious there. So I was like, all right, I really like that director. I like that actor. Let's see what it is. And it was meh. So, but the gem, the shining fucking gem of everything I've watched in the last couple of weeks, um, in order to watch uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, I had to use one of these weird, like, Roku free movie apps. The only place it was streaming was on Tubi. Are you familiar with Tubi? <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I think it's T-U-B-I. It's one of those that you can you know, download an app, and they, they have just the b- most bizarre selection of fucking movies, but they're all free, um, and you watch ads. So, like, you know, every 15 or 20 minutes, like, you get a couple of 30-second ads to watch, but they, they have a lot of offbeat stuff. So I went on there, I watched Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, and then I was like, all right, I'll look through some of the other categories. And I was like, oh, cult movies. And I was like, oh, maybe this is another way for me to watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But in scrolling through cult movies, I came across Break Into Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> yeah. So for people <laughs> who don't know, that is the sequel to one of the greatest movies of all time, Breakin', which uh, follows young breakdancers in California in the late 80s. Um, uh, Break Into Electric Boogaloo um, it takes place at the local um, community center. That uh, was an abandoned building that uh, a bunch of people built up. And now, you know, hundreds of kids from the community are there every day learning how to break dance and play sports and do art. And uh, the man is going to tear it down and turn it into um, uh, like a shopping mall and a grocery store. And it's pretty (laughs) fucking awful. It's that kind of awful that you're enjoying watching it because it's awful, if it makes sense. Like so cliched and whatever. But an interesting thing happened. The last time I saw this movie, I I don't I know I've seen it since its initial release. I saw this in the movie theater. So I'd say maybe I saw it when I was maybe in my early 30s at some point. Maybe I rented it or something to, to watch it. But now in my mid-40s, I found myself siding with the people who want to tear down the, <laughs> the community center. Because my thought was, 
maybe some people in the fucking neighborhood would really appreciate a grocery store that's much closer than the one they have to go to. Because that's how I feel about grocery stores. Like, there's never one fucking close enough. So I was a little conflicted. Ultimately, I was on the side of Ozone, Turbo, and Special K. And spoiler alert, they do wind up saving the community center in a heartwarming way. But for a little bit there, I was like, I don't didn't see other people in the community. Oh, God. And see what their opinions were on getting a fucking super Walmart put in right there on that spot. But uh, yeah, so there you go. This is this is the Chuck Palahniuk <laughs> theory that sometimes you have to revisit a story through your more mature eyes to get it. And this time I got it. You're siding with the bad guys. Um, so none of none of what you said was what I was expecting you to tell the podcast that you'd been watching recently. <laughs> because, yeah. I got a message from you the other day that oh, said I'm on, oh. <laughs> I'm on hour five of a nonstop My Little Pony marathon. I forgot all about that. I mean, I managed to block that out. I, I've been drinking since then, which is why I'm drinking today. Now, um, that's so five hours is a yeah. lot. Three hours later, I get another message. <laughs> Eight hours into My Little Pony. <laughs> Dude, there are a shit. So that eight hours was only like two seasons. There's but, more. And you, and you started at 10 a.m. because the, the eight hour yeah. message came in at six. Yep. So, yeah. So we typically have my granddaughter on Saturdays and she busted into the house and said hi. And we goofed around and horsed around for about four minutes before she said, Papa, put on my little pony. And I did, and usually she'll she'll change it. You know, she'll say, "All right, you know, let's watch something else or or whatever." Nope, that's all it was. And I, I I wasn't actively engaged with it for eight hours. I know at one point I think I fell asleep for like forty five minutes. God damn! Not only are there a lot of My Little Pony episodes, but things you don't think about. There's some continuity. Like they're not standalone episodes. Like you can watch them standalone, but there's a thread running through them. Yeah, there's uh, a. Pat Oswald does a, a, a thing because he, you know, he does stand up comedy and he did a thing about how he had his thing when he was a kid, which was Star Wars and all that. And um, he, he lets his daughter have her own thing, which is my little pony. And he's like, but that's her thing. I don't know anything about it. But then he goes on to like explain like in great detail, all the stuff that happens in my little pony. It's it's if you get a chance, you should look at it. I, I probably I probably can relate more than most human beings. Um, this is a graduation from Paw Patrol, which is obviously <laughs> even, even a younger demographic that I watched for years. And the thing with Paw Patrol is I started having like actual ideas about this show. Like the mayor is completely inept because every like third episode, she has to have puppies, little dogs help her solve some catastrophe yeah. for the city. And like you start thinking things like, how the fuck does she keep getting reelected? <laughs> why is she still the fucking mayor or i noticed that there's a weird tension between two of the pups one of the girl pups and one of the boy pups like there's a weird kind of tension between them that doesn't ever really get brought up in the show i think that hasn't been established nope it's just nope. there it's just there there's just like <laughs> little lingering glances between chase and sky and uh and yeah you can just feel that there's a little bit of attention there and i'm like i, I wonder if they write this stuff in for the adults 
I, I, I didn't look, but I'm pretty sure there's probably some kind of erotic fan fiction for. I was for just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to look because you go on a list <laughs> and you know, this is where this is where we got to get one of those VPNs to sponsor the show where we can just break in and be like, but I'm not worried about that because I use right such and such VPN. So, hey, VPN guys, we're looking to make some money. If you're interested, hit us up. Yeah. Send us an envelope of cash and then we will talk about your shit. And free VPN accounts, too. Oh, yeah. You're thinking you're 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 smart. I'm just like, give me cash. <laughs> uh so I'm glad to know that we're spending our uh, our off podcast time on really worthwhile things like yeah. Rambo and My Little Pony. We're making it work. Um, we're making it work. <clears throat> there is so much. I was thinking about this the other day as I was going through Netflix because one of the things I like to do when I have uh, an hour to watch something is spend 45 minutes just looking through everything that I could possibly watch and then never making a decision. Yeah, classic. I wonder if somebody has information on how much there is hours wise total in like TV and movies. So like not not um, user generated content or whatever, but like actually produced like legit commercial content. Yeah, because when you think about it, would movies start 90 years ago? So first like silent film, like the 1920s, right? So 100 years ago. You mean that people like actually went to the like went out and well, watched they, together? They, well, that you could see something on a screen of some sort as as a you know what I mean like a motion picture. Yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah, early 1900s, right? Yeah. 1920s. I wonder. Yeah, that's I'll say. Probably like Charlie Chaplin was in the 20s, right? And he was like at the very beginning, essentially of that shit. Um, I just wonder how many hours of content there is and i'm like i said i'm not talking about youtube videos or video podcasts just straight up acted produced you know what i mean like stuff that made it to tv played in a movie theater because it's gotta be in the millions of hours right oh yeah easily it's got to be in the billions of hours i would imagine and when you think about that just over the course of a hundred years like we have to have more than how do i say this so in the time whatever 100 years is in hours we probably dwarf that number significantly by how many hours of stuff there is to watch oh yeah it's just like a weird thought i had because like i said i was just scrolling through and met you know menu after menu i'm like jesus christ there's like ten thousand things to watch on fucking netflix then you switch over to amazon and there's another five thousand it just started thinking about how much content we've produced yeah this is this is the part where if this was a TV show and not our crappy little podcast, mm-hmm. like another person would say, if you played everything back to back, it would take you know they'd have yeah, like you could walk from here to the sun and back yeah, yeah or something yeah, yeah. someone yeah. would have that nerd shit ready. We don't have that nerd shit ready. No, no, and it it's just something occurred to me. I was thinking about how many different things there are to watch, but yeah, that's uh, it's one of those like weird shower thought kind of things. Hmm. And then What's, books, same thing. Oh my god! I mean, there's there's got to be as many books as there are people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, this is me trying to wrap up the episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's uh, what's coming up next week? We got next look. week. We are going back to our roots. So one of the first five books we reviewed was by Anthony Neil Smith, and 
we're going back to that. Uh, we're going back to some Anthony Neal Smith. He had just this past week a novella come out called Slow Bear. It is a dark humor, menace, mayhem, and a washed-out, one-armed hero in a noirish tale that never stops to take a breath. That's what Linkwood, Linkwood, Linwood Barkley had to say about it. So uh, a little bit of a short thing, um, but uh, looking forward to this. We haven't done any Smith on this podcast in quite some time. Yeah. Um, if we did, if I'd said no, this would have been one of your fifty-two books anyway. I'm sure. Um. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Probably. I um. I'm not. I, I might finish all the Neil Smith stuff. I did skip a few books, but I did finally get back around to reading the the last um Lafitte book that he put out not that long ago, a few months yeah. ago. So I may catch up. I've got I think three of his that maybe I haven't read. So. But yeah, Slow Bear next week. Short review, I think. It's 127 pages, so I don't know how much we'll be able to talk about it. Shit, we just talked about all the movies. I gotta watch more movies. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna fucking think of more weird cartoon things to talk about. Alright. Well, that's gonna wrap it up for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Um, and uh, until next time, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. <laughs>